You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Inflation prints, big bank earnings, and a pending surge in treasury issuance. For all this and more, I'm joined by Real Vision's Max Weathy. Max, how are you doing? Doing well, Jack. You know, just rolled out of my bed that I keep at the office and came right right on camera, so I can't beat that. Yeah, I, you know, there's nothing better than being mentioned by Ral in a Real Vision Daily Briefing, is there? Uh, no. Well, you know, at least it was it was a it was a good dig, positive dig. Yeah. Well. Max, today is a day where we actually didn't have a lot of price action. Uh, U.S. equities were down, but there wasn't a tremendous amount of volatility. Bonds pretty much stayed in the range, and the commodity market was relatively silent as well. So usually on these days, Max, when we don't have a lot of movement, I'm sort of scratching my head uh, thinking, what do we talk about on the Real Vision Daily Briefing? Today, I have no such concerns because this is just an action-packed week that we have ahead of us. Uh, number one, it's a real start to earnings. So companies released earnings today, but I actually think uh, none of them were in the S&P 500. It really is on Wednesday when the, the fireworks really start. Um, on Wednesday, we've got JP Morgan and Wells Fargo releasing earnings. Thursday, US Bancorp, Goldman Sachs, as well as Citibank, and then uh, Chuck Schwab as well. Friday, BlackRock, Morgan Stanley, and Progressive. Oh, and by the way, Tomorrow uh, is the release of the much-anticipated consumer price index. So there's really a lot going on this week. Okay, so Jack, I mean, within those banks, um, I mean, there's just the fact that financials have been a hot sector, but also some of those banks were involved in the Archegos blow-up. Are you more interested to see who took one on the chin with Archegos, or are you just interested to see whether you know this rally in the banks was really you know, based off of earnings or just just a Momo trade? That's a great question, Max. I think that if some banks took it on the chin that weren't Nomura or Credit Suisse, I won't have a choice but hear about it. It's going to become blaring through my terminal. I'm going to see it in the headlines. What I'm really looking for, Max, is the, uh, the fundamentals of the banks. How big are their deposit bases getting? How, you know, how much, um, what changes are we seeing in their net interest margins based on the steep of the yield curve? Is quantitative easing uh, increasing their balance sheet? What's the return on assets like? What's the leverage like? Can they uh, distribute uh, returns? Can they buy back their own stock, which, as you know, has been paused for a long time? So there's a lot to consider there. And the action really starts on Wednesday. And actually, on Wednesday, on the daily briefing, I'm going to be speaking to Chris Wayland, who, Chris Wayland, excuse me, who is a banking expert, uh, who I've been reading his report. So I'm, I'm really excited for that. Okay. Well, I, I don't have too much color to add on what's coming up with banks, but it's uh, important to know that that's what we're looking forward to. What's what's what else is on your radar for this week? Well, the inflation print um, that comes out tomorrow, and the fact that it's a year-over-year -year change data. So when you hear two percent inflation, three percent inflation, that is typically a year-over-year -year change, and we're comparing it to last year. And as you know, last April we were in a deflationary death spiral when things were looking very grim. So you're going to see those 
elevated levels on the consumer price index. The question is, is that going to lead to bond investors pulling their hair out and we're going to see another spike in yields, another crash in TLT? Or are the bond investors going to be a little bit more staid, a little bit more uh, calm and say, hey, this is transitory. This is only going to last for one month, two months. Uh, and once we get past those base effects, I'm still bullish on bonds. So that's what I have my radar on. But Max, how are you looking at uh, the incoming inflation uh, number tomorrow, as well as the worries about inflation? Yeah, well, I just had an interesting conversation with Warren Pies in an interview that's going to come out on Wednesday. And he has a really nuanced take about this, which is you know, he's looking about looking at inflation in terms of like, how is it going to move Fed policy? And so he's looking at, at core PCE and CPI because that's the benchmark that they use. So notwithstanding any any criticisms of those metrics, it doesn't matter what the shortcomings of those metrics are if that's what policymakers are using to gauge their changes. And and he he put some numbers on it, which I hadn't heard before, which surprisingly, like it's pretty simple math. And everybody remembers when, when the Fed came out and talked about uh, their average inflation targeting. What that means is they're going to let inflation run hot longer, so over the 2% target. And the interesting thing about that is I hadn't really ever heard anybody put some math behind you know, how hot are they going to let it run to make up for the disinflation and missing that target that we had before. And so he said, let's say we get 3% like today. We, we are running at 3% inflation today. That would mean that they could let it run for four or five years at 3% before they're like, all right, now we got to rein in this 3% inflation. If you get up to 4%, it's still like two years before they're actually saying, okay, this is something we need to worry about and we need to rein in. So I think the interesting thing has been the question about whether the Fed will hike rates faster than they initially had talked about. And if you're using those numbers, you know, that I, I think people were saying that they might start hiking rates out to 2023. So in the 4% inflation scenario, that's two years out. That kind of matches up with that 2023 timeline. So I think some of the thoughts about inflation um, causing the, the Fed to start hiking rates is actually a bit premature. And although the bond market has been selling off and yields have been moving up higher, we have that record issuance that you were talking about. So if the Fed can... Okay, or I mean, if, if the Treasury can issue debt, as much debt as they want to issue, they can issue a record amount in three weeks and the auction gets taken down no problem. Like, why do they care if if yields are, are moving up a little bit? And I mean, equity markets are I know we had a slight hiccup today, but we're at all time high. If, if you're thinking about it in terms of like the, the strike on the Fed put, like we're not very close to that. Um, so that's that's really my Thing that that I'm focused on, and whether this you know calling the bluff on the Fed uh, is actually a bit premature, and whether that's something that investors should actually be fading is all of this uh, excitement around the Fed having to change course. There's so much to unpack there, Max. As you say, bond investors have sort of been calling the Fed's bluff over the past, let's say, three weeks, with the U.S. 30-year sort of you know trapped in that 2.3, 2.4 range. But Max, if you say that inflation is going to run hot for 4% for multiple years, that would mean a, one, a negative 1.7% real return on 30-year bonds, not on 10-year bonds, but you're taking that huge duration risk and you're still getting close to negative 2%. You're losing 2% every year. Not a great environment for bonds. 
and perhaps a good environment for gold. Yeah, perhaps a good environment for gold and a good environment. That's what the Fed wants. Like, that's what they want. They want to be able to uh, issue debt with a negative or I mean, the, the Treasury wants to be able to issue debt with a with a negative um, real rate. Like that's that's the whole point of generating this inflation to inflate away some of this debt. Um, so I, I, I don't really see that as being too too big of an issue for them. Um, but but yeah, it comes down to bond investors. Those are the people who are per perhaps um, set to be hurt the most by this. There was also some interesting um, color that Warren added about inflation, and he he had a really cool chart of the he broke down the components of the CPI, and what you're seeing is this huge dispersion in the actual individual elements of the CPI, and that there are huge deflationary impacts, and then at the same time huge inflationary impacts. And so you're really getting this divergence that you really haven't seen historically. Um, and so that makes some of what we're seeing with inflation potentially like a head fake. Um, and, and then as well, a big part of inflation is crude oil. Like crude oil is one of the major components, and it's actually a good leading indicator. Obviously, we have seen crude plummeted negative, and and we've seen a huge run up. Um, and and there there is some bullish arguments to be made. And and Warren, as a as an oil analyst for many years, um, addresses that. But there is still like an overhang of doubt as we are four or five percent below oil demand where it was before the pandemic. So we haven't actually gotten back up to the levels we were at before the pandemic. And at the same time, there is record spare capacity. So if you are making a bet on inflation, you going up from here, you are inherently making a bet on higher oil. And although there is some argument to be made that there is, is higher oil to come, there are just as many arguments to be made that oil probably shouldn't be moving this high because it's being artificially driven by OPEC and the Saudis um, and you know, Iranian oil not being online. He also cited Venezuela as, you know, if you don't, I think his exact words were like, if you don't think Venezuela is going to increase their oil production ever again in the future, like you're wrong. Um, so I, I think that there is a lot of nuance to be had in understanding this inflation narrative, what's actually driving it. And I mean, more than anything, I think that, that that Fed policy angle is what's most interesting to me because that's creating like you're seeing the pricing of interest rate futures is being affected. People are pricing in hikes uh, closer than they were, you know, just a few months ago when the Fed wasn't even thinking about thinking about uh, hiking hiking rates. And so, you know, I think when you get those divergences uh, between what the market is seeing and take it with a grain of salt. What I'm seeing, uh, you know, that's the best opportunity. Um, so that, that's what I'm paying attention to. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, there's so much there. Um, starting with oil, uh, I understand what you're saying about oil may be a little bit expensive relative to what experts like Warren Pies is forecasting. On the other hand, though, Max, 
you know, ExxonMobil is trading below where it was pre-pandemic, whereas the other reflation trades like John Deere are trading at, you know, incredibly much, much higher than they are. Ex you know, oil has been in a down cycle for over a decade, a decade. So I think there are some promising reasons why you can be bullish on oil and also Max, if you do believe that inflation is coming, is there not a pure bet than you know buying some oil producers or refiners? Well, he adds even more nuance to that, which is that what you're seeing with the energy stocks rallying is a, it's really a duration play. And so these energy stocks, much like financials, are like the the value of the assets they own is in question out into the future. And so as people, as interest rates rise and people are questioning the validity of some of these infinite duration bets on big tech and innovation, uh, where do they go? They go to these sectors where almost all of the earnings, all of the value is being paid out to investors right away. So think about energy as the ultimate short duration asset with cousins and financials. And then, you know, think about like, uh, Cigarette company, you know, big tobacco is companies that they pay high dividends. Nobody thinks you know tobacco is the next big growth industry or anything like that. The the value is in the earnings that they're able to pay out to you right now. And look, those were rallying, and, and Warren made a tremendous call um, in in March, basically saying that not only is this the dynamic that's happening, but as well, it has been running so hot that momentum. Uh, momentum funds are going to have to start weighting these companies in because they now have momentum and so that poured more gasoline onto the fire which has happened in 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 march and and you know how how much further it has to run remains to be seen but that's that's really the dynamic there i mean you can't be talking about energy Look, I, I, I want to try not to just paraphrase the entire interview because you really should hear it directly from warren um but can you really say that we are in the turning of the commodity super cycle with record spare production like offline? Like the whole idea of like energy has been left for dead and there's all this capex means that there's a shortage of oil. Well, how can we have a shortage of oil when there is all of this spare production that's not online? So there is some um, lack of continuity between that fact and then the narrative about you know a sector being left for dead perhaps max i, I would venture to say there per, perhaps is some delusion there some you know difference between the reality and what's actually on the ground on the other hand i would say compared to what i mean compared to commercial real estate where occupancy rates in new york city are you know in the high teens uh, and perhaps in the low 20s but you have you know uh, etfs or reits like slg which are Trading, which are getting pretty close to um, pre-pandemic highs. But uh, moving on, Max, one chart, you know, Warren is such a great thinker. One chart he has, which I've got in front of me right now, is the Google searches for inflation. So this indicates that we reached a peak um, in early of this year of people just searching, what, what is inflation? Is inflation coming? Is it affecting me? What did he make of that? Yeah, well, I mean, it's just like that. This is a this is a narrative trade, and look, there's some validity to to narrative trades, but you can see that that has come back down. And 
it, he's not saying that we aren't going to get inflation. Like he actually does believe that there will be some inflation, just just not yet. Just that this is a little premature. Um, that inflation is coming, and and that's really what you saw. You saw that big spike, but so much of this is supply chain supply chain disruption driven. So much of this um, really isn't that real inflation that is sustained and that that the public is concerned about that results in that sort of chart. Max, real quick, uh, on Saturday this weekend, we had a record number of vaccinations in the U.S. Uh, we had 4.6 million vaccinations. Needless to say, the vaccination effort in the U.S. is going very well. In Europe, however, it's going well as well. Um, you know, Europe had some early missteps with AstraZeneca, but now it seems like they're getting their act together um, as we got this chart. Uh, you know, what does that mean for the economy? Well, I think it it means good things. Like today, uh, I saw you know just anecdotal, but like I saw that pubs opened up in London today, and there was like a picture of uh, a, a bunch of girls like out having pints at eight a.m. Um, so I know that you know people are excited about that, and some of the excitement around the reopening that has really driven U.S. stocks might make its way to Europe, but more than anything, there was a sort of like that dollar slide that we were seeing was, you know, right around the time that Europe went back into lockdown, like that's when we saw the dollar peaking back up. And we have actually, I think, since seen the dollar roll back over. I don't know what happened today, but here, let me just scroll down to it. I mean, it's basically flat on the day, but, you know, we was saw- that 118, 118? What uh, like like we got up to like ninety three? We're back down to ninety two eighteen. And what what do you know? Um, that turnaround is really right when we saw uh, the European vaccine rollout starting to catch up with the U.S. So you know if this period where the U.S. was you know going crazy and uh, we're going to have the, this great reopening and at the same time like almost all of Europe was in lockdown. Like that wasn't enough to get like the dollar spiking higher. Um, I think that we might be uh, looking at you know a, a return to this sort of uh, dollar slider, or, or at the very least, um, it's not the start of a dollar rally. Like if that scenario wasn't enough, and 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 now we have you know Europe catching up with us. So I, I look at really in terms of uh, you know euro dollar cross. So Max, I assume you're talking about the DXY, the U.S. dollar index, which is comprised majority fifty-seven percent euro. Yeah, which is yeah fifty-seven percent of the euro. I I do think there are a lot of emerging market current um, co uh, countries which, as they struggle to find and procure vaccines, you could see that differential widen between the dollar. The dollar strengthened against those EMFX uh, baskets. However, it won't be captured in the uh, U.S. dollar index because it is comprised of the euro, as you say. Yeah, yeah, it's very much a developed market index, and that's what I'm looking at. Um, you know, I don't, I don't pay too much attention to EM crosses myself. Uh, there's, there's much more qualified individuals who could, who could speak about that. All right, Max. Now let's move on to a segment which I like to call charts on our radar. I think this is the first time we've done this, but you and I were talking throughout the day, and we gathered a few charts that I think are very interesting to us and hopefully to the audience. Are you ready? Yeah, ready. 
Okay, so the first chart we've got is the S&P 500 30-day realized volatility. It's not the implied volatility, what the market thinks is going to happen. It's what actually happened. So as you'll see, Max, in March and April, you had a tremendous spike in realized volatility. You may be saying, Jack, why are you showing me this? I already know this. Well, it's significant, Max, because a lot of portfolio managers use something called VAR, or value at risk, which uh, basically incorporates volatility into their analysis. So if volatility is high, they can take fewer risks. If volatility is low, they can take more risks. And um, some of these portfolio managers, they have a window at which they look back at historical volatility. Some of them use one year. So as what, we're on uh, April 12th, pretty soon we are gonna reach a point where portfolio managers are looking back one year and they see volatility at elevated levels, but not near that spike. So the, the spike of March and April is not going to be incorporated in that. So we actually perhaps could see portfolio managers take on more risk. Yeah, well, I think about it more in terms of the, the relative volatility of, say, like bonds versus stocks. So, you know, you usually in a VAR model, like you're using more of the leverage to like create to, to get a more, you know, in sort of like a risk parity model, like you're levering up the bonds to get a, a more of a matched volatility between bonds and equities. Um, and so in this case, I think actually the next chart is pretty interesting, which is the divergence between the, you know, CBOE volatility index and the the move index. So you've got the VIX, which has broken. We, we had a floor really at, at like 18, 19, where the VIX hadn't gone below that level for, for a long time. And really just over the last few weeks, uh, I think last week, we really sort of plunged down through that floor for the first time. Um, but at the same time, the move index, which they're, they are tracking the implied volatility of different um, of different assets uh, has has remained high. So my question is, are these markets divorced from each other? Are the the correlation between bonds and equities, you know, not mattering as much as they did before? I mean, just a few weeks ago, we were talking about bonds were the reason that equities were selling off. So I, I find it interesting that that has that has switched so quickly, or or it would have switched so quickly. But at the same time, you know, we have um, bond volatility remaining high. Uh, heading into this this record issuance, so we will see whether that continues. Um, and Max, for the people at home, is the move index? You say it's bond volatility. Is it for treasuries? treasuries? It's just it's for treasuries, so not for corporate credit. Yeah, not corporate credit. It's it's, it's treasury treasury volatility. Um, okay, that that makes a little bit more sense because I think corporate credit and equities are very yeah. correlated, and I think corporate credit sometimes is the most important macro driver of equity performance. Just because when people, when companies can't pay their bills, the prize of prize, the equity is worthless um, or, or close to it. So, but but treasury vol that makes a little bit more sense. So that means that even as investors are pricing in less volatility in the equity market, they're thinking, okay, we may just plug along in this range. We could go up. Uh, you know, the odds of us plummeting like we did a year ago are relatively low. You're saying that they are pricing in heightened bond volatility in the treasury market, that rates are going to go, you know, gyrate all over the place and no one's really is going to know what's going to happen. Yeah. And so to me, like, yes, we could see bond volatility without equity volatility, but I find it really interesting that that's happening right now and that they're, they're not 
it's not being correlated. And if you subscribe to the, you know, listen to the bond market, the bond market knows more about what's going to happen than the equity market. To me, this is a divergence that's worth paying attention to and potentially suggesting that this, you know, look, I, I think the VIX is at, let me just get a live number. Uh, 17. Yeah, 1723, slight uptick today. Like, not that that is, it's not crazy low, but it's it's low relative to what we've seen over the last year. Um, you know, I, I think that that's a divergence that's worth paying attention to, and I'm not making a suggestion that you know people should be uh, fading that or getting long volatility, but certainly has my eye. Very interesting. By the way, for the people at home, tomorrow I'm going to be speaking to Imran Laka who is a 20-year veteran of the options trading desk. He also now dabbles in derivatives and crypto. He actually gave me and Max a, uh, week, a weekend course um, on options. And you know, Max, would it, be, would it be fair to say that he is uh, a legend and, and a mate? Oh, yeah. He's, he, he was a lot of fun to take the course with. He definitely knows his stuff. And yeah, I mean, 20 years, 20 years in London, very respected um, in the equity index derivatives space there. And then as well, I mean, it was good enough to get him a, a seat at Bluecrest. So, um, you know, I would say that he, he certainly has the pedigree to be giving that course. And it was a lot of fun to learn that. Um, so I will be interested to hear that. But, you know, what you were talking about, he was like, he's a vol guy. Like, as much, like there are some options traders who are you know using options to make directional bets you know he's very purely a volatility guy and his move into um into crypto derivatives was really just because he's like look that's where the vol is like for a guy like me like it's it's heaven like i vol is vol and so i'm gonna go be trading there so he actually as much as i'm excited to hear what he's saying about traditional finance He's saying that the action for him as a vol trader is in those crypto derivatives. So uh, I, I think it'll be interesting to get both sides of the coin there. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Definitely. Max, moving on, uh, Oliver Anderson on Twitter uh, added us and said, hey, on today's Real Vision Daily Briefing, I really want to hear thoughts about the cannabis trade. So Max, that's something that you know a lot about. As you know, I mainly focus on the bond market, not really interested in this whole cannabis thing, but you are very interested in the cannabis space. So what can you tell us about um, MSOS and the multi-state operators, I think they haven't performed so well as, as over the past month. What can you tell us about that? No, they have not. Um, there's been a sell-off, but it has come after just like an, an insane run. So how much of that is just natural selling off? Um, but there, there might be room to go lower. I mean, one of the things that's very interesting is they have been highly correlated with the Russell 2000. So um, you could argue that the cannabis trade has just been a high beta bet on small cap stocks. Um, that has held pretty true. Um, and IWM has, has seen some weakness over the last, you know, really month or so. And, and cannabis stocks have, have shown even more weakness. So I know you said like equity markets were um, basically flat today. Uh, cannabis 
cannabis took it on the chin again. Um, so, you know, it's something that I'm personally invested in. I don't own MSOS, but I own some individual names in the cannabis space. And, you know, really once that weakness started showing itself, I just trimmed my exposure a little bit, did a little bit of thinking on, you know, the specific names that I own, why I own those ones and, you know, make sure that nothing has changed, but there has been some, some news. So, you know, in many ways people say you, you want to like sell, sell the news. Well, we just got uh, legalization here in New York. There is talk of some legislation moving through at the national level. And if you were just playing it as a trade, it makes sense why you're getting some selling right now. So are you using the MSOs as a, a high beta Russell play, or is this something that you're more invested in long term? And the long term bet is basically that relative to other equities, relative to other cannabis equities, um, the MSOs are cheap. And then on top of that, they have these huge regulatory uh, headwinds in like they can't use banks and like the effective tax rate on them is just like insanely high. So those are the types of things that still need to come down. And then from there, like it has to actually play out in the earnings and, you know, it's going to stop being the shooting fish in a barrel type market where you're just riding, you can buy any cannabis stock and it's just going to keep running. You know, there's going to be winners and losers and that's, that's really going to start playing out as, uh, as more of these, you know, states come online or, or, or even if it starts coming on the national level. So you really need to think about what you're, how you're playing it. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm in it for the, for the long haul. Um, that doesn't mean I won't, you know, sell and buy and add at different points in time. Uh, this is a point in time where I am at lower exposure and monitoring that exposure very closely because, uh, the price action does not look good. Levered it's uh, correlated to small caps, Russell 2000. I'm going to guess it, uh, that MSOS and the cannabis stocks probably are correlated to duration. They have a duration component as well because they are you know, future-looking assets. They're not based on the cash flows now. They're very much focused on growth. So I can imagine it's vulnerable from both sides, the small cap angle and the growth angle. Yeah, I mean, I, I, haven't, I haven't been looking at them as like relative to, to duration, that's an interesting view. And I, I should probably take a closer look there. But I mean, look, the narrative is not, it is not there in the same way that some of the other big narratives out there are starting to, to gain some steam. Like nobody is saying like most of the world when they talk about cannabis stocks is still like stuck on these Canadian names. Um, it's starting to turn a little bit, but still very, very early stages. I mean, we like, yeah, they just legalized in New York, but, um, the interesting thing about New York, uh, which I think people should be thinking about for if they want to actually get into the individual names is there was some interesting stuff in the legislation about like the number of licenses that would go to people who are already online and medical in the state and that they would get not only recreational licenses, licenses, but they would get to keep their medical. And not that medical is, um, like I think recreational, everybody says like that's where the money is, but there's still good money in medical. And this idea that entrenched uh, interests that already have 
Um, they're already in the regulatory system within the state. They already have footprints, like physical stores, like that's going to be an advantage. And so as you are looking at potential, you know, opportunities, if you are looking to get into this, that's something that, you know, maybe look at a state, look at states that have medical that you think could be flipping the switch to recreational and, and who are the people who already have boots on the ground there? All right, so now I've got a super natural segue from cannabis to high yield credit spreads. Let's look at chart eight, which I like to call vol begets vol or lack of vol begets lack of vol because you see in this chart, the red line, you see uh, US high yield credit spreads narrowing. And at the same time, you see uh, 50 delta put implied volatility on HYG, which is an ETF of high yield credit declining as well. So it's the sort of thing that as an asset class does better, uh, markets are pricing in that it will continue to do better and they are, they are discounting the probability that things will go to shit like they did a year ago. Well, there is some validity to that though. Like these things are reflexive. And uh, I remember, you know, it was a few months ago, I think it was uh, Chris Sidio was like bemoaning, like, man, I really would love to get back to this you know, time when when volatility was lower and uh, another uh, vol trader with maybe a little bit more experience, not that Chris doesn't have good experience, but somebody just, you know, tapped him on the shoulder and said, yeah, be careful what you wish for, because these markets are very reflexive in that way and that lower vol begets lower vol generally. Um, And so, you know, just because it's cheap doesn't mean it's not cheap for a reason. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that is true. Um, what you're seeing there is is exactly that sort of phenomenon. Amen. All right, Max. Now let's move on to our last chart, which I like. It's it's we're ending on a positive note. Something that's a little, a little bit funny. Um, it's a chart of an Ecuadorian bond, which went from about sixty cents on the dollar to seventy six cents on the dollar um, just overnight. And why did this happen? Well, a Bloomberg article: Ecuador bonds soar as millionaire banker wins presidency. So basically a millionaire becomes the president of Ecuador and suddenly everyone is pricing in that he's going to pay off the government's debt and make his make the make his fellow bankers whole. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't um I don't know exactly what the dynamics are there in Ecuador, but it, it seems to make sense. I mean, we've had plenty of uh, distressed sovereign debt investors on in the past looking at these types of situations. And it is amazing how much of that is due to like really knowing people and negotiations, understanding the the movers and shakers there. So as much as it's interesting that the president did this uh, or, or that it, it jumped 16 points, you know, the people who operate in these markets like are they're swimming in the deep end of the pool, and so they, there might be very good reason why. I mean, look as far back as as far back as 2020, like we were at these levels before before any of this happened. And I know that there was some unrest in Latin America. Um, I don't want to hazard a guess. Like I, I'm not up on Latin American American politics enough to know whether like Ecuador was one of the hotspots. But um, I was actually fortunate enough to be on a panel with Vincent DeLuard and two Latin American investors who were saying that actually, if you got down under the surface, um, although there was social unrest, like it was, it was happening the right way. Like 
people were they were having elections people were just doing things the right way in a way that you know maybe traditionally you would have expected um a little bit more underhanded dealing in latin america and that that wasn't really how it was all going down so um i think it's interesting that you know you see a new president elected and then the market reflects that that change after what was a tumultuous year there we go what a way to end max thanks so much for joining us thank you jack you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.